decades spending mass focused on alleviating poverty. British public's trust in charities is declining. Funding pressures are increasing. Technologies like blockchain are revolutionising our work. The SDGs are crucial to ensuring no one is left behind. Power is shifting to the global south. The Bondcast, exploring the debates in international development. Hello, and welcome to The Bondcast. NGOs rely on the images and stories of the people they work with to communicate the importance and impact of their life-changing work. These contributors generously share their time, images, experiences and perspectives to make our communications, fundraising and advocacy more powerful. But many of the stories NGOs share perpetuate stereotypes about the developing world and portray these people as disempowered. We've all seen those fundraising adverts featuring a poor African child with flies in their eyes. But how do the people in the pictures really feel about how their stories are being told? Many organizations have been taking steps to source and promote authentic imagery from people in developing countries. But there's still an imbalance of power between the NGO worker asking for a photo and the person who has agreed to have their picture taken. I'm Michael Blaschik, communications manager at Bond. And today, we've brought together communications experts from across the sector to interrogate how NGOs can gather and deliver content more respectfully and ethically. First, we have Ernest Randria Malala, Voices from the Field Communications Specialist at Watered Madagascar, who is calling in from Antananarivo. Salama! Next, we've got Rachel Erskine, Communications Manager at AMREF Health Africa UK. Hello! And lastly, Jess Crombie, Senior Lecturer at University of the Arts London and Content Consultant. Hello. So, let's set the scene. What are the power dynamics between NGOs gathering content and the people who share their stories? The power dynamics are uneven, I think it's safe to say. Um, There are lots of inroads being made in this area, but there is a long way to go. One of the reasons for this inequity between the two groups is because um, of the pressures that NGOs are under from audiences and the things they hear from audiences. Um, During my career in the NGO sector, I've sat in on focus groups where I've heard people say things like, I wouldn't give to a child that's holding a pencil, Um, that child's all right, they've got an education, or I wouldn't give to that child, they don't look skinny enough. And under those kind of pressures and hearing those kind of uh, pieces of feedback, NGOs get nervous. And so they resort to storytelling that they have experience in, that they know has worked in the past, um, even if sometimes that storytelling perpetuates stereotypes. That's not to say that NGOs are not aware that that can perpetuate stereotypes. Um, I've worked with lots of people who are very aware and really, really engaged in these issues. But what they're trying to do is take those steps towards balancing out that lack of evenness in terms of power dynamics. But it's taking a long time and it's, it's slow baby steps. Yeah, I don't think content collection is necessarily inherently unethical, but I do think it's very layered. As Jess says, it's complex and it ties into broader conversations and that we're having across the NGO sector about race, representation, power dynamics. And I think it's really important that we engage with those broader conversations. And if we explore those dynamics, I think it actually makes for a much richer story, ultimately. Another thing I'd say is when we're collecting content and sharing people's stories, that's um, an immense 
privilege and it confers on us a responsibility to represent those stories in as accurate and authentic and nuanced a way as we can. So we're talking about not just the process of creating those stories and um, sort of co-creating those stories, but also then the way we disseminate them. So there's, there's a lot to think about. Yeah, I totally agree. For me, things are quite different because I'm a local person with a, with a better understanding of the local culture in my own country. But sometimes it happens that in one hand, people feel and assume that they are farmers and not educated. And in the other hand, they, they assume that I'm from the city, educated, full of knowledge. But um, they also know that this is their village. They can do whatever they like in their own locality. So uh, I think the way I work with, the way I interact with communities seek to redress this um, imbalanced power dynamic, because um, my role as a local content gatherer um, as a voice from the field officer is first of all about building a long-term relationship with communities before gathering content. There's a power dynamic that exists particularly between an NGO worker who's asking someone if they can gather their story or take their picture. Could you tell us a bit more about the power dynamics in that example? Jess? Yes, there is. One of the things that I talk to um, NGOs a lot in my role and indeed actually to students that when I'm talking to them about ethics and power dynamics and image making is around the ideas of conscious and unconscious bias. So everyone comes to these story creation situations with their conscious and their unconscious bias and this is actually reflects back on what Ernest has just said about people assuming because he comes from the city that he's going to be you know know all, all know everything and know all about everyone's situation one of the things that I spend lots of time talking to people about is about recognizing their unconscious bias and admitting their conscious bias because it's only when you have taken those steps that then you can start to address those issues we all have those biases we can't get away from them but what we can do is recognise them and part of the process of thinking about them helps us to take practical steps to address them so it might be assuming that someone who because you've gone to a rural area in a very poor country you might assume that someone doesn't understand what you're going to do with their story so you might think oh they've probably never heard of the internet or they don't use a smartphone and actually through the research which I've carried out with NGOs what I've found is even people in very very rural areas are very sophisticated in their understanding of communication technologies and, and what communications do. So that's an unconscious bias which lots of people need to overcome because it's only by overcoming that that you can have a properly informed consent conversation because so you're not coming to that conversation thinking oh they won't really know what I'm talking about. Actually you're coming to that conversation thinking this is an equal who I can have a proper conversation with. And um, so it's so some lot of it is overcoming those sort of internal barriers which then help us take practical steps to doing um, our practice in a more fair and even way. Yeah, I think that's a series of good points well made. I'm a big fan of the photographer Giles Dooley and um, I saw an interview that he'd done the other day where he said, we say we take pictures, but I always think the best photos are given to us. Photography for me is a conversation and I really like that. And I think having that in mind is quite helpful. And as Jess and Ernest were both saying, it is all about relationships and taking the time. And a lot of the time we're short on time and that's why the role that Ernest plays at WaterAid is such a fantastic one um, and I think a lot of NGOs could kind of learn from that but yeah it's all about building relationships and building trust and as Jess says I think 
people are increasingly aware of their rights and not just aware but also prepared to claim those rights and I think that's a a good thing that's a positive evolution and it encourages us as as NGOs to to hold ourselves accountable Mm. or to be held accountable. Definitely and as you've said despite having the best intentions many NGOs do depict people in developing countries as disempowered. You've mentioned some of the challenges that NGOs face already but could you speak a bit more on the challenges that you think NGOs face when it comes to representation and how could NGOs more positively and more honestly represent people's stories? Based on my experience, I'd say there's three big challenges. And the first one is resources. So shortness of time and lack of people often. Um, As Jess said earlier, a lot of us are one person teams or very small teams working with limited resources and under quite a bit of pressure. And we're trying to do a lot of things at once. And sometimes those things aren't compatible. I think when your focus is just getting through the day, you just don't have the time or the bandwidth to think about implementing big changes and I think you really have to set aside the time to do the work of kind of interrogating the way you do things and why you do them that way and reviewing and maybe making some changes and you also need um, buy-in from the powers that be at your organisation. The second challenge I I would raise is kind of history. If you've been doing things a certain way for a long time then it's really hard to move away from that and you've got to be able to convince everybody across your organisation that things need to change. But I do think there's a really strong case um, for us to do better. I think the charity sector in the UK and beyond is still kind of smarting from recent examples of, of what not to do. And I think there's a really strong case ethically um, and also legally and reputationally to evolve. And then the third thing I'd say, which is a, a challenge that I've often come across, is the fear of losing support, financial or otherwise. And to that, I'd say, I guess it's important for us maybe not to underestimate our audience as well. I think you have to give people the chance to accept the new way of doing things and sort of weigh up the risk of maybe losing some of your existing supporters, but also in exchange gaining new ones who might respond better to a more progressive way of of doing things and a more sort of nuanced approach to storytelling. Those are really, really great. You've summed it up so brilliantly. I think one of the exciting things right now, and I I know that not every NGO would um, consider this exciting, but is the landscape into which these changes are taking place. So those challenges are are real and experienced by all NGOs, big or small, right now. But the landscape of, you know, people like David Lammy publicly criticising NGOs, combined with, you know, the well-known trust deficit that's happening across the sector, has actually given us this really fertile ground and it's allowed the senior staff and the leaders of these organisations to pay a bit more attention, a bit more focus to these issues because there is external criticism and external debate around it so for people like myself and Rachel who work in communications flagging these issues up to our senior staff you know I don't know about you Rachel but it's an experience where we're being more listened to and there's more focus on this which is really great and I think you know I was thinking about some very positive examples that I've seen across the sector just in the last year or so Save the Children launched their See the Real Stories campaign which was their new brand campaign which is literally all about using storytelling to change our position on how we see the people that they represent in their stories so it was saying these are the stories you see but these are real people they're not just stories they're not just stereotypes they're not just representations they are real three-dimensional human beings Um, I thought that was so exciting to see a campaign which focused entirely on that 
Lumos Foundation have launched this whole Youth Ambassadors programme where they have young people who have experienced being in care and being in orphanages and they are the main spokespeople for that organisation which is again really exciting putting the contributors and the participants in the forefront of what they're doing and I just think WaterAid, I mean Ernest you will talk about WaterAid's work but the fundraising work around WaterAid has been really really groundbreaking across all of their fundraising in terms of doing exactly that, putting people at the forefront so it's quite a challenging time for NGOs but it also means that there is loads of opportunity to tell different stories and I think it's quite exciting for that reason. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's great to hear that there's so many positive examples of how the people in the stories are being put front and centre in a really ethical but still an engaging way. We've been talking about the people in the pictures a lot. From your experiences, how do these people actually feel about giving up their stories and the resulting communications? Ernest, can you give us some of your experiences and insights? Yeah, from uh, from my own experience, I can say that sometimes it can be difficult to to explain to people who, who may never have traveled far or even left their village before that someone halfway across the world is going to like um, see their image and read their story. It's really tricky to explain that to them sometimes, and it is not that obvious as well to explain to them that someone they have never seen is going to support and help them because of their story and photos. Uh, so they often like ask me, like, Ernest, uh, why are they helping us? Because they, they just can't believe it. They, they just can't believe that some people far away are really, really, uh, we have an amazing people who are supporting what we are doing as an organization, but sometimes people just don't believe it until they see the result. And as well, what I always do is um, I always use um, concrete example that I bring with me, leaflets, uh, printed images, and I often show them videos on uh, on my laptop and tell them this is what we did in this village and this is what we do and this is how things work and uh, this is your image is going to be used. So that's what I often say. In terms of reaction from communities, from uh, my own experience, most Communities are fine with the process as long as they trust you. Uh, what I often do is I, I revisit the community several times to do, as I told you before, to build the relationship. So I know I know them all because I spend like a lot of time with these guys. We call each other as often as we can because I give them a phone number. Sometimes they just randomly called me and say, we miss you, Ernest, when are we coming back? I'm a local person, so I would say I generally uh, receive a warm welcome. Uh, they say things like, Daddy Ernest is coming, Ernest is in the village, Ernest everywhere, Ernest everywhere. That's one thing. And the other thing is like, community also love giving back. Uh, I noticed that a long time ago. They also are very, very happy to do something they believe will help their one community. For example, the case of water, when water or sanitation arrives, the community often celebrates the person who shared their story for helping the others. So there's always this, uh, we call it a big death water. There's a big, big dancing thing and a big uh, celebration. And then and they help their person of the village often take, took the floor and then asking for their hero to get some applause from the, the rest of the crowd. But it also happened as well that after several visits focusing on an individual, I have also experienced some uh, jealousy from other community members. 
So because I, I often um, visit an individual and then focusing on her and then following her story, so uh, sometimes it creates a bit of a jealousy from other community members, which is a bit challenging in the beginning. But what I was always trying to do and I was always trying to balance. So uh, I think everything is all about balancing and communicating. And as I said earlier, most of the time the community are very um, surprised that someone from very far away wants to help them. And uh, it is part of my, uh, my role as a Voices from the Field Officer to help close the gap between donors and communities. So what I often do uh, after I go to the UK or um, I go um, abroad or something, I return to the field and I tell our like um, communities, beneficiaries about the many, many people uh, I was able to meet and who have uh, organized balls, raffle cake and, you know, uh, sales just to be able to help um, communities like them. And most of the time the reaction is like, oh, my God, they do that for us, really. And they are so surprised. So my last point about community reaction is I think I would talk about, I would say it also depends on the local reputation of the NGO. It depends on how far they trust you. Have you done something in the past in the surrounding communities? That is why it is always, I think, very important to have something that you can show and share with them. Uh, so the reputation of the NGO is, I think, also very important in to how you will be uh, received in a community. Yeah, it's really fantastic to hear that you've really invested in that relationship with the community and it's yielded such positive results. Jess, you've done research with communities and how they feel about communications from NGOs. Can you tell us more? Yeah, I carried out some research with Siobhan Warrington between 2015 and 2017, which was published in 2017 called The People in the Pictures. And actually what we found really reflects what you've just described, Ernest, which is kind of great to hear that, um, that we weren't totally off the mark. We went to four different countries, to Niger, to Jordan, where we spoke to Syrian refugees here in the UK and to Bangladesh. And we heard a whole range of things around why people were motivated to give their stories, um, the process that people went through to share their stories and what they felt about that and what they thought about their later portrayal. And in terms of motivation with people wanting to to give back and people wanting to feel that they were part of something bigger, that came through really strongly. The process, as Ernest says, mostly that was a very, very positive experience for most people. You know, they really enjoyed it. It was a break in the norm. Some, for some people, it was a really cathartic experience being able to share their story, even if it was a story um, remembering something sad that had happened in their life. The one area which wasn't working out so well was around consent. So of all the people we spoke to who had had their story gathered, um, they had all signed a consent form and those consent forms existed. But hardly any of them remembered being part of that process, signing the form. And so some of the work that I do again now with organisations as a consultant is looking at their consent processes and separating out the form from the informed. It's <laughs> um, like my little catchphrase. Um, but you do need to get a form often, but informed consent is not about a form it's about a conversation and you know what Ernest is describing about going to see people before um, having those conversations during the shoot going back afterwards and having further conversations showing people what we've made that's this brilliant process which you can't do in every single scenario but which really changes that relationship 
Around portrayal, we had some really, really interesting things. And this is the area where there's the most kind of criticism from the media and from the academic communities primarily. And what those communities tend to assume is that if people could see the kind of adverts that charities produce, well, surely they would never want to share their stories. And they've been sort of duped into doing it. And that wasn't what we found at all. We showed people what's known in the sector as DRTV, direct response television ads. And no one watched a DRTV ad and said, I hate that. I wish I hadn't been part of that people watched it and even people who were in the ads they watched them and they said that makes me feel really sad to remember that time in my life but that is the truth of it that's what happened in that situation but they also said I don't only want to be shown in that way so that's the nuance that kind of Rachel touched on earlier but people want to tell their stories and I think there's this kind of misconception that people might not want to share stories but my experience and the experience you know of myself as a practitioner gathering stories for NGOs and as a researcher working the academic field is that people want to share their stories and that definitely reflected through the people in the pictures but also I was um, listening to Desert Island discs recently and Paul Greengrass was on there who obviously has kind of made his name more recently with things like the Bourne films but who started out as a documentary filmmaker and he won his first BAFTA for a film about the murder of Stephen Lawrence and he had this brilliant quote from Doreen Lawrence who he spoke to on the eve of the film's release and said are you sure you still want us to release this film you know are you sure and she said to him people need to hear this no story you can tell can be worse than what I have experienced that's something that we we sometimes make assumptions on behalf of people without asking them what story do you want to tell and how do you want to tell it and while it can be really well-meaning the fact that we do that actually what we're doing is kind of making paternalistic decisions on behalf of people still and actually we need to change our processes so it's about saying what stories do you want to tell and and how do you want to to tell them and I'll just finish by saying that this kind of point around the RTV not being necessarily problematic to people, but people saying, everyone said very strongly, we don't want that to be the only story that is ever told about us. And we heard this quote over and over in, in Niger, where people said, I won't try and pronounce it correctly, but people said, a song is sweeter from its author's mouth. And everyone all over the four countries we went to said, I just want to have the chance to tell my own story my own way. And people expressed this very sophisticated understanding of why we tell those kind of stories. There was this quote from a Syrian teenager in Jordan saying, happiness doesn't move people. You know, kind of you know, understanding very well the reason NGOs tell those stories. But she also said, I want to take the photo. I don't want to be an object. Um, you know, and this kind of incredibly sophisticated understanding of how communications work. And I think it's about looking um, to those contributors as partners in our storytelling, not as subjects. It's a really critical distinction. So people want to tell their stories, and it's really important that NGOs tell their stories. Do you have any tips or recommendations on what NGOs can do practically to more ethically and authentically gather content and tell these people's stories? Rachel? Well, I'm here today not only as communications manager for AMREF South Africa UK, but also as a co-chair of the People in the Pictures Working Group, um, which is a group that was set up a couple of years ago by Jess and um, Tamsin, who used to be with WaterAid. And it's since been absorbed into Bond. Um, it's one of the working groups we meet every quarter, more or less. And we just explore issues around ethical content collection. So photography, storytelling, yeah, issues of consent, for example, that's been a big theme recently. And it's a fantastic group to be part of. It's really dynamic. Um, it rep- it's a real cross-section 
of the sector and speaking from the perspective of one of the smaller member organisations I'd say it's really helpful and encouraging to see that even the sort of the big hitters are facing the same uh, challenges and asking themselves the same questions and I think there's a lot of wisdom in the room um, and it's really great to be able to learn from others. Yeah, there's so many practical steps. First of all, I'll just kind of flag that one of the things that we've produced as our working group is a set of guidelines called Putting the People in the Pictures First, Ethical Guidelines for the Collection and Use of Content. It's a small set of guidelines which focuses on two areas, one around informed consent and and, um, the second one around responsible portrayal. And it really focuses on a lot of practical steps that organisations can take. So it's designed to be used by NGOs who might not have the resources to put these guidelines together themselves, to give them the confidence to gather stories ethically and responsibly. From my own experience, and you know, up until quite recently, I was the global content director at Save the Children, and uh, and I was at Water Aid before then. And I think it really falls into these two chunks: one around process, and one around portrayal. So one around gathering the stories and how we share the stories, and one around um, you know the actual content that we make and how we tell those stories. And the first one around process, we've talked about consent a lot in this podcast, but consent is the cornerstone of good ethical practice. If your consent process isn't working, you kind of fallen at the first hurdle, and it's okay if your consent process isn't working as long as you recognize that and take some steps to to try and change that because um, I'll just say now that you know when we released the people in the pictures everyone was feeling a bit nervous about the findings around consent um, we brought together the whole sector to have a conversation about it and absolutely everyone was, was in the same situation and I think admitting that and thinking about how to do that um, better is a really 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 important step it's not just a form it's uh, you know it's a cornerstone And the second thing is around do no harm in terms of the long-term effects on communications. And this is around portrayal. Um, And it's thinking about your stereotypes. When you're telling these stories, you are communicating into a broad communications landscape, which includes the media. Now, sometimes NGOs come under the same kind of criticism that is directed at the media. And I sometimes think that's a bit unfair because we're not media organisations. We are NGOs. And the reason we're reporting from the situations we're reporting from is because we are needed to be there to help. So we're not telling good news stories often because... um, Um, Well, we're not needed in some places where good news is happening a lot of the time. But being aware of that wider landscape and the kind of drip, drip effect of telling the same story over and over again is really important. There's a brilliant TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story by Chimamanta Ngozi Adichie, where she talks about the fact that it's not that stereotypes are untrue, it's that they are not the only story. And I think that's the point, you know, it's not that we have to tell a diverse range of stories, but we can tell the stories that we tell in a diverse way. So um, some NGOs have taken really interesting steps where instead of telling lots and lots and lots of separate stories, they've decided that they will tell a broad range of stories about one person or one community. So then their audiences see that community experiencing a whole range of different parts of their life. And therefore, that process kind of humanises them and shows them as more three-dimensional rather than this kind of two-dimensional object that this um, girl from Jordan identified. And I think the second thing is just investing in audience response research. I'm working with Rachel at AMREF um, and with UEA um, in partnership between my university, UEA and AMREF, to produce a piece of research which um, we're just kicking off at the moment, but which is looking at how audiences respond to different types of storytelling. So storytelling led by contributors, um, you know, the stories they want to tell in the way they want to tell it, and stories that are mediated through and led by NGOs. And we're going to do a kind of pit those two types of stories against each other and find out how audiences respond to them financially and emotionally and investing in that type of research that's and it's not costing a lot of money but that is the way that we learn if we don't do that kind of thing 
we can't take these steps forward because we don't have the data to fuel um, the changes and we need to get that data to fuel those changes so um, you know it's not it's it's all very well to have those conversations internally but I think sometimes it's a bit of putting your money where your mouth is even if it's not very much money. <laughs> and then Ernest do you have any top tips practically from your experience of working with people to get their stories? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would call them like tips or tricks or um, good, I would call them like good practices. I've got quite a few though. I mean, first of all, I would talk about, uh, you know, trust and time. Uh, what I do is I often like spend a day without my camera, getting to know people, just interacting with the villagers, playing with their children, hanging around with them and cooking, eating while sharing my own stories. That is what I often do. I, I totally understand that this can, this can be like very expensive for content gatherers arriving from abroad, but, but I would say it's so worth it. Uh, I have been working with um, photographers and other filmmakers from abroad, and um, uh, this is one of my recommendations when we travel together. It's also so important to, when you are in the field, to work out how to fit into the day of the community. You, you need to know when this person is available to talk, because if you are just turn up and then demand to speak you know, with people on that day, I think this is an ethical and causes problem because they might lose like, you know, a day or half a day or they might lose money. So uh, we really need um, to plan to have these rookie days to gain their trust. Um, that is like the first thing. And the second thing I wanted to to talk about is uh, I have done some recent participatory photography, which gives community the, the agency and skills to, to tell their own stories, which was really amazing, uh, rather than having me telling that for them. So now I went to the UK for the exhibition and everything, and now I can't really wait to return to this community in, in this rural uh, Madagascar, whose work was, um, as I said before, recently used alongside my um, my photos in an exhibition in London. You know, so I can't really wait to go back to this community to tell them all about it. And uh, as well, I brought a book as well from uh, from the exhibition, and uh, um, yeah, I just, I'm just going to go to this village, and then I'll give it to them, just to give them an idea of um, how, how it works. And I think as well, this is also, I think, closing the loop of trust for them. I ask them to, you know, share their lives with me. They agreed. And now I, I have come back to show them what I did with their work. So uh, this is always, uh, I think, a good practice. And from a very, very practical uh, note, as we need to pick our team wisely when we are like going on a, in, in a field trip or on a visit or visiting um, a country. Because what we often do is like we just go work with a translator or a driver and then other people from the country program or something. But you need not only, I think you need a good translator, of course, but we also need a translator who is open and the translator need to be a people person and want to interact with communities, not just translating. And I think it's the same for a driver or anyone else accompanying you on the trip, because uh, from my experience working with um, content gatherers from abroad, to be able to do it right, uh, the translator, the driver, the project people, photographer, filmmaker, everybody on the trip, I think it needs to be on the same page and uh, understand the ethics of their uh, participation in the trip. 
I'd say from my experience at AMREF, we are relatively small. There are a few factors that mean that we maybe have a bit more room for manoeuvre than some um, other NGOs, some of our peers. Um, we're, at least here in the UK, we're quite small and we're, we're massive in East Africa where we're based and we work in 35 countries. But in terms of our communications capacity, um, I'm on my own for the moment in the UK. I work very closely with our fundraising team, but I have counterparts in all our different offices and we talk pretty regularly. We have bi-monthly calls um, and then we're constantly on the WhatsApp. Um, so, I, And I think that's something that makes my job, um, first of all, a lot more enjoyable and also easier in terms of, you know, we have quite an honest relationship and I think we'll, we're supportive but we'll also pull each other up um, and I think if I ever have a doubt about uh, for example an image that I'm thinking of using or even just a particular turn of phrase then I know I can go to them and I can ask would you do this and if they say no then then no and you know I think that's a really valuable resource. I'd say also we're in a fortunate position in the sense that our supporters in the UK are used to us telling quite complex stories and they're actually quite demanding they don't like being talked down to and they appreciate when we give them um, it's obviously the stories that we tell are emotional but there's always a uh, sort of quite factual element to them too and I think that we're lucky in that respect so they aren't surprised I think um, when we tell stories that are the way Jess was saying a little bit more nuanced so in terms of other pieces of advice I would give. And one of the changes we've implemented at AMREF UK um, is that we've made the decision to work only with photographers who are from the countries that we are photographing. And I think that has loads of advantages. Um, communication is easier. Um, trust with communities can be built more easily. Um, I think they can also help hold us to account. Um, so one top tip I would give is for any comms people who are looking to commission a photographer is to look into the African Photojournalism Database, um, which is an initiative of the World Press Photo Foundation and Everyday Africa. So it's a massive database and, and growing all the time of uh, freelance photographers who are from and based in a range of different countries. Um, so we've used that database maybe three or four times now and we've had a fantastic experience every time. I was pretty ashamed that it took me so long into my career to find out that that existed. Also, another thing I'd say, just to go back to the um, participatory photography that Ernest and Jess have both mentioned, Photo Voice do a great training on um, participatory photography. I coincidentally was there myself yesterday and they've got loads of good training and resources um, if that's something that you're interested in experimenting with. I'd say um, Health Poverty Action have done some great work on language and framing, so using how to use the language of social justice um, rather than charity, and I think that's really helpful. That certainly helped me in my reflections in terms of the way we talk about our work at AMREF. And then just more generally, if in doubt, ask um, something like the people in the pictures group. Um, it's really supportive and there'll always, always have been somebody who's asked the same question or gone through the same thought process or had the same existential crisis that you're having and I think it's just good to know <laughs> you know that you're not alone um, and there's loads of people that you can learn from um, and then yeah otherwise just just do it I guess it, it yeah it takes resource takes time takes a bit of bravery but I think we all know we've got to do it I've just got one um, 
I don't know if it's a top tip or a tip off, but um, there's a think tank called Regari who publish papers about the uh, NGO sector um, for people, for workers in the sector to kind of read and um, and review. And they're kind of academic papers, but they're they're not written in a particularly academic way, luckily. Um, but I've just written one for them, which is all about contributor response to their own representation. So what I've done is reviewed all of the studies that have ever been done about contributor response to their own representation, which I have to say isn't very many it's a handful of about six studies um, including the people in the pictures but that's going to be released in a couple of months and so anyone who is interested in reading more about what contributors think of their representation by NGOs that's going to be available and online in the next couple of weeks. It was interesting that Jess brought up the danger of a single story and because it made me think of a a TED talk by a South African writer called Sasonke Msimang which she did um, I think a couple of years after Chimamanda's talk and she actually starts by accusing Chimamanda of stealing her thoughts (laughs) Um, but she talks about the fact that we get so caught up in the personal narrative when a story is well told that we um, isolate it from the sort of the broader bigger picture Um, so she says that when you're in the business of um, social justice then you need to tell stories that are both personal and political and allow us to explore those kind of fundamental issues that have created the situation that the person is in And she talks about how it's really important for us to also tell stories that people don't necessarily want to hear because sometimes those are the stories that we need to hear. And then basically she finishes by saying, we often have the illusion of solidarity when we're listening to a powerful personal story, but actually what counts is the action that you take once you've heard the story. So she says, listening is one thing, but you've got to go out and do something about it. So whether that's signing a petition, clicking the donate button, um, going out to march or writing to your MP. And I think that's what we're all aiming for. And I think the idea of how we get there, the best way of getting there, those ideas are changing and it's really exciting to be part of that process. And I think what Jess has said about being honest with ourselves as well is, is pretty key. Yes, and it's great to hear such positive examples of things that you're all doing. Thank you all for sharing such invaluable insights and expertise. Although there are a lot of challenges that NGOs face, there's a lot of really great work being done with the people in the pictures as well as with portrayal. So thank you all again. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to access the ethical content guidelines we mentioned, head over to the Bond website or check out the notes in this podcast. We'll be delving further into how NGOs can gather truly informed consent and adopt participatory approaches to storytelling at the Bond Conference in March 2020. So book your place now by following the link in the notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate or review us on your chosen podcast platform. (laughs) 